Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, uh, we've been in Genesis the whole quarter thus far, so we're moving into Exodus, and we're looking at this idea of when times are hard, when there's pain, when there's shame, when there's hardship, uh, where do you hide? Uh, and most of what we've looked at so far this quarter is when there's pain, when there's shame, when there's hardship based on sinful decisions that we have made, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Hagar, Sarai, uh, Jacob. Now, th- th- there have been little flashes of, like with Joseph especially, when the pain, shame, hardship has been brought by other people's sin. But the major theme thus far has been more hardship that you've caused yourself, right? Um, there have been times when my kids have done something very stupid and they're really mad at some of the consequences. And I'd say, who are you mad at? Because I-, I tell you, the one person you ought to be the most mad at is yourself. Um, and, and a lot of times that's true in life, is it not? But that's not always the case. There are sometimes we are put in seemingly impossible situations by the sin of other people. And then, in a sense, we're running looking for some place to hide. What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this overwhelming situation? And it's like, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything to get here. Okay? So, um, as we read through this passage today, I want every person just in your own mind to try to be thinking about what is the hardest situation, the most confusing situation you've ever been put in. The situation where it's like you had to make a decision and they all seem like bad options, right? You ever been in one of those? It's like, okay, what's the least bad option we have? Because they're all bad options. So uh, we're going to look at different situations here. And the first one I'd call a dangerous situation. Look at Exodus chapter 1, starting verse 15. Now y'all, y'all know the context, right? This is hundreds of years after Joseph and Jacob have come down to Egypt. Joseph, Jacob, all the original 12 sons, they're all dead. And there arose a Pharaoh who knew Joseph not. They've forgotten their legacy. And now they just realize we've got this entire other ethnicity living in the borders of our land. And they're really multiplying faster than we are. They're going to be bigger and stronger than we are. What if they one day decide to revolt or attack us or join with one of our enemies? And so they start oppressing them. They turn them into slaves. Okay? But even then, they keep having lots of babies. So Exodus chapter 1 verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other was named Puah. Now these are probably not the only two midwives in the whole country, but they were probably like the leaders of the midwives that were overseeing the births of the Hebrews. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and seat him upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So what he's doing is he's basically going to start a type of genocide, but he still wants to do it in secret. He doesn't want there to be some public decree. He's trying to kind of do it under cover of night. If if there's a sense in which you could kill the baby and make it look like an accident, kill all the boys, and this will ruin the race. Now, um, just if you study history, even other genocides closer to our own time, a lot of times they started like this. Small and secret and hidden were the things the Nazis were doing to the deplorables before it became more of a public execution of all the Jews. 
But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Okay, so this seems to be a, t- a type of civil disobedience. All right, and I think most of us would say certainly justifiable. Right? There's Acts chapter five, verse twenty-nine. It's a famous passage, especially if you want to be a good American. It's a good one to know where the Pharisees are telling Peter and the apostles, "Quit preaching in the name of Jesus," and he says, "We must obey God rather than men." Right? So when, when is it okay to disobey the government when the commands are clearly against the commands of God? Okay, so that, okay, that seems clear enough. But verse 18, eventually Pharaoh figures out what's going on. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. Now, what do you think about verse 19? Sounds like a lie. It sounds like a lie, and almost certainly it is a lie. Okay? And so verse 20. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. So, what's the problem with this text? They lied and got away with it. Yes, and he... They got a blessing for it. I mean, it seems like, hey, they feared God. That's kind of their principle, their worship. And so their application was, tell a lie. And then God seemingly smiles on it and blesses them for it. Right? I mean, that's a fair reading of the text. Now, it's it's, uh, interesting and funny to read all the commentators on this. I probably got 20 great commentaries on Exodus at home. And the way they try to get around this, some of them, Right. Well, you see, maybe, maybe there actually were some radical cultural differences in the Egyptians and the Hebrews and how they gave birth. And, and, and you know, to kind of put it in modern day without you know getting too graphic, it would be kind of like uh, the Egyptians. They were the more pampered ruling class who just wanted to show up to the hotel, and they were like, "Give me the epidural, knock me out. I don't want to be awake for anything. Wake me up when it's over." But the Hebrews were the more kind of granola, home birth, bring the doula. I don't want any painkiller. Okay, but still, let's even say that's the case. And listen, I'm not trying to make a judgment call, right? I mean, praise the Lord, God didn't call me to actually do the birth. So women, you choose whichever one is best for you, and I'll support you, okay? (laughs) Here's the point that I'm trying to say. Even if that was true, was that the main reason that all the baby boys were surviving? No, the text clearly says, Pharaoh said, do this. And they said, essentially, we fear God, so we're not going to do that. So even if that was true, that wasn't the real reason. Does that make sense? Again, I'm not going to ask you to share publicly. But haven't we all done this? Somebody asked us a question, and we know the real, 100% full, honest answer would either offend them or get us in trouble. So we say something that is technically true, but it's not really the answer to the question they're asking, Right? So here, here's the question this passage leaves us. When's it okay to lie? When's it okay to lie? Is it okay to lie when your wife says, how does this dress make me look? Is it okay to lie when somebody tells you something and says, I don't think I was supposed to tell you that, so when my husband tells you, please act surprised. Is it okay to lie when the Nazis come to the door and knock and say, are you hiding any Jews? And you are. Okay. My guess is this. At some point in all of our lives, we have told what you know, some might call the virtuous lie. Right? You understand what I'm saying? 
But the way that we might find to justify it might be different. Now, we'll come back to that. Let's keep going. Next, we're going to look at a despairing situation, okay, where they just, it seems, again, these are all just seemingly impossible situations to be put in. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast in the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. The secret genocide didn't work, so he just makes a public decree to everybody. Kill all the Hebrew baby boys. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Which is kind of interesting. It's like, this makes it sound like, almost like they were going to kill him. But then they saw what a beautiful baby he was. Something uniquely beautiful. They said, ah, we can't kill him, let's hide him. Now, Calvin on this passage says, sometimes when our faith is weak that God will give us extra motivations like this to kind of get us to do the right thing. So they decided, we can't kill him. We're going to hide him. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, covered it with tar and pitch, and then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, um... Listen, praise God, we, we live in such a not perfect but a just and safe society that we're not having to face decisions like this. Can, can you imagine? Can you imagine? You're a slave in an oppressed people in this superpower nation. Kill your baby boy. And it might seem obvious. Well, of course you don't kill your baby boy. But just put, again, try to put yourself in their shoes. We know they had one older daughter at least, right? What happens if you try to keep the baby boy alive? He's not quiet. He's found out. You get turned over. And so they come and say, well, now we're going to kill everybody. Mom, dad, and daughter. You, you could see how somebody might rationally say, we've got to kill the baby boy to save the lives of three others. It's an impossible situation, but that kind of seems just. Listen, I'm about to use an example, and before I say it, I'm going to say it after just so nobody misunderstands me. I think I'm as pro-life as you can get. That's the main issue that matters to me when I vote for people. I'm all the way pro-life. I'm against all abortions anytime, all the time. That's, my, that's where I land, right? So I'm trying to be as clear as I can be. And yet I have heard stories of married people, sometimes even so-called Christians, professing Christians, they have a bunch of kids, and they get pregnant, and they're like, we already feel like we are borderline insane, and we can't do it, and they consider an abortion. I think that's wrong. I think that's evil. I think that's stupid. But I want to at least have compassion for the situation they're in. What about the single mom that's already got a bunch of kids? What about the less than 1% time when it is because of a rape or a child molestation? Again, I'm against all of it. But that's pretty easy to say when I ain't never had to deal with anything like that, right? And you say, keep it and give it up for adoption. Amen. But even that, 
Keep the baby of your rapist for nine months. Think of what that does to you psychologically. Again, I'm not trying to be pro-abortion. I hope you hear my heart. I'm just saying sometimes life will put you in seemingly impossible situations. What are you going to do? I, I heard a true story about when Stalin was over Russia and there was a group of Jews trying to sneak out of communist Russia together because they were being persecuted. And one of the ladies had a little newborn. And at one point they were literally crossing a river and some of Stalin's guards were coming and tracking them. They could hear them and the baby started crying. And you know what the mother did? She put her baby under the water and she drowned it to save the entire group. So they got out and they got away. Did she do the right thing or the wrong thing? You want to cast the first stone? Okay. Now, I wonder what their plan was. I mean, even look at what they did. (laughs) We're going to hide him three months. Now it's not working anymore. Let's make like a little personalized ark for him. And let's just put him out there. I mean, imagine some of you. Your three-month-old baby, I'm going to put him in a basket that I made and I'm going to set him free on the Mississippi River. Does that sound like a good plan? Does that sound like a loving parent? Now, they leave the daughter to watch. Maybe the plan was hopefully he can just make it during the day and then at night we'll go out there and get him and nurse him and we'll figure something. Maybe they were just buying themselves time. I think it's highly likely they knew where Pharaoh's daughter bathed. Right in some kind of private, secluded spot, a tributary. They put the basket there, hoping against hope that Pharaoh... Remember, Pharaoh was the one that said, kill all the baby boys. But that his daughter would have some maternal compassion, find him, again, hope against hope, maybe there's a chance. And by golly, it works out. Works out pretty good, right? I mean, because I think Pharaoh's daughter was smart enough, like when this girl just runs out, hey, you want me to get a wet nurse? Yes. This is, this is family. This is the mom. And back then, children didn't get weaned until three, maybe even sometimes as late as six. So Moses got to grow up in this Jewish family hearing about Yahweh at least for a few years. But then, again, guys, put yourself in their shoes. Let's say it went all the way to age six. Then you as the slave family have to go to the oppressor's family and say, here's our child, we're done. It's a seemingly impossible situation. This seems like they did an act of civil disobedience that we would all say, I agree with that one. They did the right thing. I hope I'd have done the right thing if I was there. But sometimes there really are deadly situations. Look at verse 11. It came about in those days, this is about when Moses was about 40 years old, when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren. So he knows he's a Jew. And he looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, it's a pretty hard question for us to answer. When is it okay to lie? Is it ever okay to lie, and if so, when, and how do you know, and how do you define it? When is it okay to kill somebody? Was this justifiable homicide? Or was this, ah, maybe, let's don't call this homicide, let's call it manslaughter. Okay, fine. Is it justifiable manslaughter? Keep your finger here and flip over to Acts chapter 7. Stephen's sermon, which I think is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. 
he kind of gives an overview history of the Jewish nation. And so in Acts chapter 7, starting verse 23, he's talking about Moses. And he said, When he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defeated him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So this gives us a little more insight. Moses, by this time, already had some sense of calling from God, some sense of knowledge. I think God protected my life. I think God put me in the house of Pharaoh and gave me all this education and all these blessings so that I could be the deliverer of my people. And he goes out and he tries to start the revolution. He thinks he's going to be the Jewish William Wallace, so to speak, and all the people are going to rise up and follow him, and it doesn't work. It backfires terribly. Okay? Now... Mom and dad's civil disobedience seemed to work out really well, didn't it? The midwife's civil disobedience seemed to work out really well, did it not? How's Moses' civil obedience going to work out for him? Back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 13. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other, and he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? Right? Can't we just all get along? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Didn't seem to work out too good for Moses, did it? Why didn't he go turn himself in? I mean, in some sense, Moses killed like a police officer. He killed a representative of the state. Now, Application, okay? There are many other examples of this kind of stuff in the Bible, right? You don't have to look hard. Rahab, the prostitute, lying about spies, and it's considered an act of faith. David is about to get nabbed by the Philistines, and so he deceives them, acts like a madman, and he's delivered, and he writes a glorious psalm afterwards to celebrate it. And listen, go through church history, guys. Martin Luther and John Calvin, two of our greatest heroes, were both involved with having the state put to death heretics. We agree with that. Luther, during Luther's day, and he's preaching, right? Justification and freedom. And so a lot of the peasants rise up and say, we want freedom against these oppressive princes. And Luther told the princes, no, no, no rebellion, put it down. And the princes put it down savagely. And then Luther really struggled, I think, with some regret. Did I give the right decision? So before I say this, just like I'm all kind of pro-life, I love being an American. God bless America. I'm pretty, if I wasn't a preacher, I'd be in the military. I'm patriotic. When I'm not reading about the Bible, I'm typically reading about either World War II or the American Revolution. I mean, our whole country was founded in civil disobedience revolution. And go back and read it all and try to justify it all biblically. And come let me know when you got it figured out. Because it ain't that clear. It ain't as pretty as we'd like. Now, let's just focus on the virtuous lie. Some of this other stuff's way too heavy, right? And praise God, we're not dealing with most of the other situations. I had a seminary ethics class here with Reverend Barker years ago. And we kind of went through all these kind of things that we're talking about, including, and, and others that we're not talking about, like 
euthanasia and when's it okay to pull the plug on somebody if they're in a coma. And... But let's, let's, again, let's just talk about the virtuous lie. Because, and I'm, I thought about not even sharing this because I, I have, I revere Reverend Barker so much, but he said this in the class. He, he used this example. It's public. You can go get the lectures and listen to it. He said at one point there was a couple in his church you know, they'd come to Christ later in life, and at one point the woman came to him and just said, I, I need counsel. What's going on? And she said, before we were Christians, my husband was out of town traveling. I had a one-time, you know, one-night stand. I got pregnant. I never told my husband. We have the child. He thinks it's his. I'm just racked with God. I never told him. And Reverend Barker's advice was, don't tell him. You've made it this far. There's, and I, I remember being a student in the class thing. I'm like, oh, is that the right answer? I didn't say anything, right? I think I was listening to it on distance, so I couldn't say anything. But the woman couldn't handle it. She was so racked with guilt, she told her husband. And her husband couldn't handle it. They got a divorce. What would you do? What's the right answer? The whole virtuous lie. Everybody will essentially agree, yes, there's obviously a right time to do stuff like this. But the way they try to explain it, Here's the way. I'm just going to give you a few examples because there's lots of different rationales. Some say, well, yes, lying is always a sin. But there's a hierarchy of sins. And so murder is a higher sin. And so if you have to do the smaller sin of lying to prevent the bigger sin of murder, you do the smaller sin. Okay? I mean, that works rationally, except saying there's times it's okay to sin. Well, who gets to decide when it's okay to sin? Or other people said, no, 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 if you have to lie to prevent something greater like a murder, then it's okay. Other people tried to use just war ethic, right? I mean, when you're in war, if we go to war with China soon, which might actually happen, you know, we don't have to tell the Chinese, hey, we're sending some submarines your way, just wanted to let you know. There, there's a right type of deception. Listen, even in games, in football, right? I'm going to fake the handoff left and then throw it right, even if I'm a Christian. Was that a lie that I need to repent of? <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? Here's one explanation I heard, and I love the person trying it. But he said, well, technically, if the Nazis knock on the door and say, are there any Jews here? What they're technically saying is, are there any Jews here that you're okay with I'm killing? So you can say no to the question, and technically you're not lying. It's like, okay. (laughs) You realize how dangerous that is once I start interpreting what everybody says? Well, I thought what my wife really meant was this, and so I answered this way. That's a real slippery slope. Now, let me give you a real practical example, right? I mean, some of these are practical from history, but let me give you one from my life. Um, and unfortunately, I could give you more than one. But I just give you one that probably most of you are going to deal with something like this at some point. One of our sons, when he was a teenager, he did something really big, bad, and stupid and tried to lie about it and cover it up. So as me and his mom were trying to get him to talk about it, you know, I said, did you do blank? And the first answer, and again, most of y'all don't have children old enough to have experienced this yet, but you're probably close enough to remember when you were the teenager saying things like this, right? He's like, uh, well, what exactly do you mean, right? And then, you know, I came out a little bit more forceful. I'm like, hey, you better get real specific, real clear, quit playing games with me. All I wanted was him to confess his sin. And the reality is I already knew, right? Okay? Because somebody else had told me, another parent had told me. And then, in the fear of Olin, he got real serious. And he kind of rattled off, right, every time, every incident. And part of what he did is every time he told me all the people that were involved in it. Now, I didn't want to know that part. I wasn't asking for that. 
But I think just in the moment of he's like, okay, I better err on the side of saying too much rather than too little. He said everything. Now, here's the dilemma that my wife and I faced. A couple of these parents we knew. Most of the parents we didn't know. But now we know something about one of their children. It's pretty bad. And it was pretty time sensitive. And so the question was, what do we do? Do we tell the parents or not? And listen, I could find a verse to back up either answer, right? You say, well, you just go to the Bible. I did go to the Bible. <laughs> and there's a Proverbs that says, it's the glory of man to overlook an offense. Right? There's Proverbs about, don't, don't tell, cover up. But then there's doing to others as you would have them doing to you. And I'm thinking, I'd want to know. This is my kid. So, a lot of prayer. Start calling the mentors, right? Here's the, most of the time, it's good to have multiple mentors and counselors. You know when it's bad is when they disagree. And I basically had a split decision. Some of them were saying, do not tell the parents. You don't know these parents. You don't even know if these parents are Christians. You don't know if they might respond in wrath, not in grace. You don't know. Do not tell the parents. Not your spot. Okay, that makes sense. Others were saying, you have to tell the parents. Of course you tell the parents. What do you want somebody to do to you? Now you're all thinking, where, where'd you land? Okay, so I, what I did is I told my son, I said, you tell all your friends they got 24 hours. Best case scenario, they go confess to their parents. But if they don't do that, I'm going to tell them. I'm calling their parents. And my son, like, begging, no, this will ruin my life. Like, decisions made. Now, to this day, my wife and I'll say, we're still not sure we made the right decision. We did the best that we could in a seemingly impossible situation. Now, everybody flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And, and, and the question probably on the forefront of many of our minds right now is, well, what's the right answer? When's it okay to lie? When's it okay to kill somebody? When's it okay to do civil disobedience? And listen, those are important questions. But the bigger question we're asking is, in seemingly impossible situations, where do you hide? What do you hope in? Hebrews chapter 11, skip down to verse 23, right? This is the hall of faith, the great men and women of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Does that, sound, does that sound to you like a perfect, faithful retelling of the story we just read in Exodus? What seems off? They're not being afraid. They weren't afraid? Of course they were afraid. If you weren't afraid, you'd just have your baby sitting out here. We're not afraid of you. My God will protect me. I'm not putting him on a river. I'm not afraid of anybody. Let's keep going. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughters, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. How faithful does that one sound? What's that? It sounds like he was, yeah, this amazing person. But it's the same problem. When you read it in Exodus, it does sound like he was fearful. The matter had become known. Pharaoh wants to kill him. He ran away. So what are we going to do? 
all become liberal scholars and toss out the Bible and say it's not inspired? Okay, no, I think that's the wrong way. Okay, listen, here's what the Bible's doing, guys. It's telling us, and we could say the same thing about the midwives. The midwives, Moses' parents, and Moses. They were normal sinners like me and you that had a lot of fear. And yet they feared God most. Does that make sense? Now let, let's just talk about this concept of the fear of God very briefly. You know, a lot of times you hear, well, fear of God means to respect, to revere. And then there's a lot of truth in that. And think about this example. It's a little bit like a quarterback stepping up to make a big, important pass in the game. And he sees the linebacker coming out of his peripheral vision. He knows, I'm about to get crushed. But he stands tall in the pocket. He makes the pass anyway. He takes the crushing blow. Or it could be the receiver downfield running. It's not the perfect pass. So he jumps up to catch it. Even as he hears the footsteps of the safety coming, he's like, I'm about to get my head taken off. But I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to focus on the ball. What's happening there with the receiver, with the quarterback? In a sense, they're saying, I have more respect for my teammates. I have more reverence for my coach. I have a greater desire to win the game than I do to protect my body. Than I do have fear or respect for the tackle or the pain that's coming. Does that make sense? That's a great picture of what Christian faith is supposed to look like in an impossibly hard situation is, I'm terrified of the situation I'm facing. It's like, yeah, I can identify with that one. That feels like parenting every day sometimes. And yet, I have greater respect for the Lord my God. By His grace, I'm going to try to do my best. So in one sense, that's application point one. Okay, Um, But here's application point two that's really the more important one for us today. Because again, if you're sitting here thinking, we're kind of almost out of time. The bell's going to ring soon. He's got to tell us when's it okay to lie, when's it okay to murder, and when's it okay to disobey the government. <laughs> Saved by the bell. <laughs> now, here's the point, guys. The Bible is not mainly a morality book. The Bible is not mainly a book of ethics. It is a book of ethics. It is the best morality book of all time. But that's not the main point. And in my experience, it is very easy for even many professing so-called evangelicals to when it comes down to brass tacks, what I really care about is just tell me the right stuff to do in my life because I want to be a good little perfectionist and get it all right. And again, that's not a bad desire if it's your distant second desire. And the first desire just got to be, I fear God. Another way he said, I trust God. And even when I don't know the right answer, I'm going to pray, I'm going to think, and I'm going to take the best step of faith. I'm not hoping in my obedience. I'm hoping in God who supersedes my obedience. I told that story that happened a few years ago in our parenting, and I'm being honest with y'all. I still am not sure if we made the right decision or not. But I'm not worried about it because I'm not living based off my own record. That's not my hope. That's not my identity. That's not my sin. I'm not hiding in my own efforts. I'm hiding in the goodness of God. That's my hope. Does that make sense? Listen, doing while depending. Having breakfast with a friend yesterday, I said, you need to to do your best to do the right thing 
But you don't need to depend on your doing of the right things. You need to depend on the goodness of God. Does that make sense? And guys, that's a hard dichotomy to live in. I'm going to pray. I'm going to think. I'm going to seek counsel. I'm going to read. I'm going to study. I'm going to wrestle to get the best answer. But then when I take that, what I think to be the best step of obedience, I'm not opening my obedience. I'm totally just opening in the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of God. That even if I'm actually doing something stupid and sinful, that He's such a gracious, loving, wise, caring, compassionate Father, He's going to still bless my socks off. Because it was never about me earning it or deserving it. So I'm doing while depending. Okay? Now, I am not telling you that we shouldn't think about these questions, right? I'm telling you, I took a seminary class on it. What I'm telling you is this. Even if we could get Reverend Barker and Martin Luther and John Calvin to come back from the dead and sit in the classroom and have them all day and say, tell us all the right answers, they probably wouldn't agree and they couldn't do it. And if the three of them together couldn't figure it out, me and you aren't going to be able to. And that doesn't mean you just give up and you're just lazy and haphazard and say, I'll just do whatever the heck I want. It doesn't matter anyway. Have you read the Bible? If you get that message from the Bible, you're not paying attention. You better be dreadfully serious about the decisions you make. There can be massive consequences. But I'm just telling you, if you have a little bit of pride and boasting in, I'd like to show you my record. We've been doing it so great. I think I'll write a parenting book here soon. God is able to humble the proud. He is able to put you in situations that will make you look like a fool. And your only hope is that there's a merciful creator. Calvin said, the most excellent actions are sometimes stained with partial sin. Is that not true of all of us? Two more verses and we're done. Hebrews 11, verse 28. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted, were drowned. Now here's what I want you to just remember and think about for a second. All those Israelites, somewhere probably between one and three million, standing on the other side of the Red Sea after it closed and wiped out all of Pharaoh's army. They sang a song. Now, I can't quote the song, and I bet you can't, but I can tell you what it wasn't about. It wasn't like, we did such a good job killing that lamb. We did such a good job painting the doorpost with the blood. We were so smart, we stayed inside when the death angel came. We walked across that dry riverbed so well. It wasn't any of that. Now, listen, did they do their part? Absolutely they did. But their part, needless to say, was the minor part. What did they sing and rejoice in? God has cast the rider and the horse into the sea. God delivered us. And guys, with all of our education and all of our wisdom and all of our morality and all of our ethics, we need to be thinking, we need to be praying, we need to be wrestling about, is it ever right to be deceiving? And if so, when? But then at the end of the day, you make the best decision you can and you don't hope in that decision at all. You hope and hide in, I know the true Passover lamb who got slaughtered in my place. That's my hope. That's my confidence. I hide under his blood. So even when I blow it and make a massively stupid decision, which in hindsight, if I could go back and change it, I would, there's some freedom, there's some grace. Because again... The Bible's not mainly a morality book. 
The Bible's mainly a salvation book. It says, don't look to your own actions. Look away to the one who saved you. And in that confidence, you can have freedom to wrestle with the hard decisions. And when the deadline comes and you have to make a decision and you can't do nothing and you're still unclear, you just say, I'm going to do my best and God have mercy. And in a sense, he says, great, because that's what I've been doing the whole time is having mercy on you, even at your best. Lord Jesus, we do want wisdom. We do want wisdom for the impossible situations we face in dealing with the government, in dealing with parenting, in dealing with uh, work situations. God, we need more wisdom, and you promised to give us the wisdom we need. We cry out for that. But Lord, I pray in all of our wisdom and all of our effort, we would never foolishly, subconsciously, or subtly start to think that we're earning any of the blessing. But they would always remember that all of the blessing that we get ultimately is a blood-bought gift that comes from the blood of your Son. And we're so grateful and thankful for Him. Help us worship and honor and obey Him today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.